0: I want to welcome uh, Tommy Graham, the editor of History Ireland, National Magazine. He's a historian in his own right and a lecturer, and he brings these hedge schools to the people. Um, His panel are really the experts in this area. Um, Ladies first, Liz Gillis. Um, I know that Tommy will introduce her in a minute. Liz is a friend of mine as well. Going back a few years ago, uh, I combed Ireland in 2015 trying to get a program together for the commemoration of 1916. And I would have attended seminars and lectures around Ireland. And international professors uh, were coming to visit and talk. The best I heard was Liz Gillis by a a long way. Um, Martin Mansra, he's a very humble genius really. Um, He is one of the key people behind the peace process. And uh, a, a man that a lot of people admire for his humility, a brilliant historian as well. Um, Dolan Fallon is an excellent young historian, works with RTE, as has Liz as well. You'll have seen him recently on TV. Uh, Multi-published work, his best work I think by far was the uh, work on John McBride. Um, And he has helped students uh, that I have had to complete excellent projects for their leaving cert, as has Liz, I must admit. Um, We are expecting another member of the panel, Dr. Mary McAuliffe. I think she's one of the leading experts in the world, really, on women's history, particularly at this period. And she's currently doing new research in that area. We couldn't have got a better panel. Uh, We're going to start the proceedings in a minute. I just want to uh, mention to our history teachers that are around the place, uh, and particularly invite all the other schools uh, with a large welcome. This wouldn't work without the, the history teachers from Skerries, Sutton and the other schools who came here today. For the schools wanted to come here today, we couldn't really put them in. Um, thank you for coming here today and making this uh, a real uh, Dublin Schools event. Uh, I want to remember to Dr Pat Callan who put this program for Leaving Start Together. He was our assistant principal here for 20 years and he suffered a bereavement in his family last week. So he's unable to attend. Uh, today. Okay.
1: And welcome to the latest uh, History Iron Head School. I have to say, in the 10 years of doing these, uh, this is the biggest crowd I've ever sat in front of. So, this is our, this is our first stadium gig, uh, you could say. Now, uh, the topic uh, this afternoon is a century on how do we view the War of Independence? And uh, I think uh, Kevin has done a, a, an excellent job in introducing uh, the panel. Um, I'd just like to welcome everyone here. First of all, from the, 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 from Ma- the Malahide Community School, from Scaries Community School, and from uh, St Fintan's High School in Sutton. Now, just uh, one or two uh, housekeeping things. I know that the, the, the Skerries people have a train to catch. Uh, apparently, there's a two-hour honours maths class. You know, how could you miss that? Uh, <laughs> so, I will. Uh, if you're, in case you're worried, in case you're worried that you might miss it, uh, we will uh, wrap up uh, sharply at uh, about 20 minutes past three. Okay. Now, the way this is going to work is, uh, you're going to do all the work here, by the way, first of all, and I'm just, you know, I'm just uh, here to keep order. Uh, we, I will call on the various students uh, by name to, to ask their question of the panel. Uh, I will nominate, I've already nominated uh, somebody to respond. Uh, and then the person asking the question has a chance to come back in you know, at the end saying, rubbish, you didn't answer the question, or whatever, <laughs> uh, whatever is appropriate. Um, now, just uh, before I forget, I would like to uh, acknowledge the support of the commemorations unit of the Department of Culture, Heritage, and the Gael Tapped. Uh, I would also point out that this is being recorded, so if you fall asleep, you know it can sometimes happen. Uh, <laughs> you can you can catch it on the on our website on podcast uh, later or tomorrow or whatever. And of course, you know any interv- any uh, comments you make, you know, keep them clean and uh, you know. Non-liveless. Now, (laughs) let's go to our first question. Um, Robert McCann, Sixth Year Malahide Community College. Uh, Where are you? Now, we have uh, radio mics here. So if you get the radio mic down there. And uh, Robert, uh, if you could just ask your question. (laughs) Sorry, I just want to say that, uh, by the way, we have a a fifth member on this panel. Kevin is actually officially on this panel. uh, But uh, he's he's taking a floating uh, uh, role here. Um, but I will be pitching the odd question to him um, uh, as well. Robert. <coughs> <laughs> Good microphone technique there. Uh, uh, do you think that Lloyd George's decision to suppress the doll in September 1919 contributed to causing a war of independence? And do you think that independence could have been achieved through dialogue if the doll had not been
0: outlawed?
2: Martin. Well, it it all depended really on uh, the attitude of the British government, and they made it clear long before even the 1918 general election when Sinn Féin was rising is, look, it isn't an issue about whether it's a republic or not. Uh, Ireland wants to be a sovereign, independent state, and we want to make it clear uh, under no circumstances uh, can we accept or tolerate that. Now, There were some actions uh, earlier in 1919. um, I suppose the first action of 1919 at Solahead Beg where uh, two policemen were shot um, protecting some gelignite being carried. So there were actions. The suppression of the Doyle and suppression of Sinn Fein, which happened pretty much at the the same time, um, they certainly led to an intensification of the War of Independence, but uh, they didn't didn't start it. You see, the view on the British side was this, um, and indeed amongst unionists in Ireland, look, uh, they're going away from, they're not going to take their seats at Westminster, so therefore they're going to be totally ineffective, and in a few months' time they'll crawl back, and they weren't going to pay any attention whatsoever to the result of the 1918 general election. Yes, of course, in abstract theory, Um, if people had been willing to listen and respect the result and so on, um, uh, no doubt perhaps conflict could have been avoided, or if the Allies had been prepared uh, to give a voice uh, to Ireland at the peace conference. But the reality uh, is that... um, uh, nobody at the peace conference, not even the Soviet Union, which had only just been formed, wanted to offend Britain by supporting Ireland. So Ireland had no diplomatic support from uh, from, from, from from any other state.
1: Now, uh, Robert, do you want to follow up on that? Are you happy with that answer? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Dear Martin. laughs> Dear um, anyone else on the panel want to come in on that? Uh,
3: Just on the question of the doll, how effective was the doll? I mean, the doll only ever met four times in public. uh, And the last time it met in public was in May 1919. It's very hard to operate a parliament when you're at war with the most powerful empire in the world. And in total, you know, between the the, the meeting in January 1919 and the truce, the doll only meets 21 times ever. But despite the fact they're not able to meet and go about the business of of normal politics in that sense, some of what they do around the country is remarkable. Like, they establish uh, Republican courts. You know, they tell people, we're done with the British court system. We now have an Irish Republican court. They establish a Republican police. Like for an underground revolutionary parliament, they do quite well. But I think the main thing about the all, it, it has a symbolic importance. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbolic representation as much as it's a political body.
1: OK, let's move on to the next question. Uh, uh, Tom Duffy, Skerrys Community School. Tom, where are you? Uh, if you just take the, if you take the, the radio mic.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I was just wondering uh, what new evidence has come to light since the 50th anniversary
3: of
4: the War of Independence?
3: Don't know. So, you're the lads that are missing maths to be here, so I'll speak very slowly. I'll speak, <laughs> no, very, not, no, I'll speak maths. very slowly. Oh no, maths is coming. The That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the primary difference, I think, between researching this period now at the remove of a century and trying to, to research this period, say 20 years after it happened. It's just the sheer volume of first-hand accounts that we have access to. Uh, the best resource is the Bureau of Military History. They're just incredible witness statements taken by people uh, who were there at the time. 36,000 pages worth of witness statements from you know, direct participants uh, in the Irish Revolution. And uh, the problem with the witness statements, there is problems with them. They were taken very late on. I mean, they began taking these things in 1947. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, mean, I can barely remember what happened six months ago. So, sitting people down in 1947, and asking them to describe what they'd been through in 1919 or 1920, memory uh, is a very funny thing. But the witness statements are online, Bureau of Military History.ie. You can search them by keyword. So whatever aspect of the revolution uh, you're interested in, Gaelic Athletic Association, the GAA, you know, you can search Gaelic games, and it'll bring you into every witness statement from around the country that mentions Gaelic games. That's an absolutely incredible resource to have. The pension statements are more reliable. Uh, the witness statements, there's a lot of one-upmanship. People are trying to put themselves at the heart of history. There's seven or eight lads who claim they raised the flag over the GPO. You know, unless they were taking the thing down and raising it again all day long, they can't all be telling the truth. But in the pension statements, you have to get verification. So you have to go off and get a senior officer to say...
1: Donald, just before you go on to that, just a, just a little technical point, right? Uh, just If you're a student of history, you have to make a distinction between a memoir. A memoir is somebody's yeah. you know, writing years after the event. Now, it, it's an honest account but of what they remember or of what they don't remember. It's different than if you get something uh, that was produced in real time from the period.
2: Absolutely.
1: So there's different levels of evidence. And if you come up with this in in a history essay, you'll you'll get big marks for this, right? (laughs) Uh,
2: You
1: know, I've been able to distinguish in different types of evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, so a memoir is is somebody's uh, remembered whatever, and of course it depends.
2: But he can rely on contemporary records that they have kept. Mm. Yes, yes, <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's, not get yeah, too, yeah. let's not get too technical so, here. Don't I mean, go.
3: The, 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 the pension statements are, are more, I think they're generally more accurate, because you have to go off and get someone to say, he was there, he did this, I saw him do it, or I saw her do it. And the government was giving you money, right? So There was money involved, exactly. There was money now, involved. Some people didn't give pension statements, some people who were, who were angry with the state that emerged for the revolution said, I don't want a pension from this state, I didn't fight for this state, and they never applied for one. First-hand stuff from the time is fantastic. Military archives online have loads of primary sources. So on Togluck was basically the newspaper of the IRA during the War of Independence. That newspaper is up, digitized entirely. And all of this, all this stuff, mil, uh, the Bureau of Military History, the pension statements, the newspapers from the time, it's all free on military archives. And that says something about this country, that we took material as good as that and put it online for free. Kevin, can I go to you in this as, as a teacher, right? In your, in
1: your quieter moments, do you, do you kind of quietly curse military archives for producing all this extra work that teachers have to do by thralling through these uh, extra sources?
0: No, we love the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not burdensome, but um, in the last couple of years, I was talking to Liz a little bit earlier about this, like the quality of work that history students are producing in Ireland is of a very high standard, particularly the project work because they really engage with it. I mean, the average mark two years ago was 90 out of 100. The average mark in some schools was 97 out of 100. And a lot of it is to do with the sources online. Can I mention, too, um, some of the teachers may be familiar with this, some of them may not. There's, uh, on SkullNet, or PDST, there is uh, a booklet, really, a documents uh, booklet put together by Dr. John Dredge, 1918 to 1923. I was talking about this... Uh, event with him at the weekend and he said um, he's current, he put more work into that than he put into anything because of th- all the controversies he was hitting that he couldn't get a handle on them until he found the documents that answered his questions. Now this is a guy at the top of his game so for these young people doing a Leaving Cert exam facing the kind of controversial issues that come up in the, in the early 1919 to 1921 it's an enormous task for them to get their head around it. um, I was at a meeting, I think it was 2015, they were making plans in Dublin for uh, the commemoration of uh, 1916. And the historian, Joe Lee, said, there was a lot of arguments at the table about, well, this is going to bring up a problem, and we can't put their names on the wall together. You know what I'm talking about at Glasnevin. He said, you think this is controversial? Wait till you see what's coming with the Civil War years. (laughs) So there's a lot of stuff uh, available to teachers and students But it's the expert handling of it by teachers with the guidance of people like you that make it a very rewarding section of the paper to do. It's probably the best part of the Leaving Cert course, even though there are no real answers, there are more questions.
1: Well, on the question of, of the projects, I have to say, as editor of History Ireland, this has been a great source an easy copy for for me, uh, because we, we've we've uh, we've published the winners of this uh, essay competition. Didn't run this year, by the way, but it's going to be back next year, by the way. So you know, uh, it, it hasn't gone away. Uh, it'll be back next year, and we've published those articles and some some brilliant stuff. I have Absolutely. to say, and not just the research, but also
4: very readable. You know, yeah. they know how to communicate as well. Mary, you wanted to come in. Yes, uh, just to say, like. Um, Since the 50th anniversary, one of the big things in this decade of centenaries, of course, is the role of women has become very, very important. And with the military archives, we now have material that we didn't have before uh, to show the role of women and expand our knowledge about what women actually did. Whereas they were not just the girls helping the lads fight for Ireland, they actually come into their own in terms of history. And also going back to to, um, eyewitness accounts, for example, I've been working recently With Margaret Skinner, who wrote in 1917 her eyewitness account of her week in the Royal College of Surgeons, doing my bit for Ireland. Now it is a propaganda piece. It's about you know weren't these guys great and these women great going out to fight for Ireland? But it also gives us detail of what happened that week, of uh, you know when they arrived on Stephen's Green and the trenches they dug. She does not mention Countess Markovitch shooting anybody. Uh, on the green in those first few hours, which again you know, helps us deal with that controversy that's always generated about Countess Markovich that she shot an unarmed um, Dublin metropolitan policeman. Um, and so the, the material we have about women and about the Irish citizen army and about the working class who participated in the rising is much more than we ever had uh, 50 years ago. And it's changing how we write the history of the revolution. So history is never static. Uh, It changes with the material we have, with the sources we have, with the archives we have, and revolutionary history is transforming because of our access to things like the military uh, pension applications, the Bureau of Military History files. But also, because um, this decade of centenaries has got loads of people interested in history, and it is a very interesting subject, um, people are coming, uh, um, coming out and saying we have this material That's been up in the attic for years, material, first-hand accounts, Uh, my great-granny or my grandmother left this or grandfather left this. So all that material is coming up. Again, going back to Margaret Skinner, I've just finished writing a biography on her. Her great-grandniece has a big suitcase full of photographs from that period, photographs that have never been seen by anyone, and I'm still negotiating with her. To, to, to try to get Keep them in me the public. Mary, right? I'm always desperate for images for the magazine. Yes. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, a material like that. Like recently, I found a photograph of the village my mother came from in North Kerry, which was burnt by the Black and Tans, and never seen a photograph of it, of it destroyed, and found it about two weeks ago. So there's material out there that nobody's seen for the last hundred years that we're still coming across, and it's changing how we write the history, how we analyse the history. Uh, and how we broaden out our knowledge of the history.
1: Terry, Mary, you've, you've uh, raised the issue of women's history. I'm just going to move on to a question on that from Cliona O'Riordan. Cliona O'Riordan from Scurries Community School. If you take, if you just get the mic there.
0: Yeah, no, I'll go back to that. Um,
3: my question is about at local level, what part the women, women played in guerrilla warfare toxic, tactics used by the IRA?
1: No, Mary, that's a very right. okay. specific question, right? <laughs> At Good local question. level.
4: Yes, uh, and I think local, local and regional studies are very important um, in order to really get drilled down into the detail of what was happening in, in particular parts of the country. Um, some parts of the country weren't very violent during the War of Independence. Other parts were more violent. But what were the common Man women doing particularly? I, I presume it's common Amman you're interested in. Um, Well, if you look at the branches, if you go online in the military archives, you can go into the common among files where you can get membership names at local level. So whatever uh, local community you're from, you can go in and see who's in that branch. And you can also then match that with pension application files and see what the women are saying they're doing. And what you discover is the women were as active as the men in terms of militancy, and uh, being combatants in the War of Independence. Any activity that happened, uh, very li- little happened without them, that any activity that happened, they may have not been the frontline soldiers, but they were delivering arms and ammunition to ambushes. They were the dispatch carriers, so they were taking messages from one commandant or one leader to another. They, were, they had the safe houses, they were running the safe houses. They also had set up 1st stage stations. Because of course, if you were a wounded IRA man, and you were on the run, there was no way you could go to a hospital. You had to be dealt with if you were wounded in the field by the Cumin women. They also, most, a lot of them looked after the arms dumps and it is the women who are looking after the arms dumps. Some of them are actually making homemade bombs and ammunition uh, and things like that. Quite dangerous work. Very important part of their work is intelligence gathering. They are living in the communities. So if a town has an RIC barracks, or a garrison, a British military garrison, which black and tans are, are, are stationed, or the auxiliaries—they're watching them. They're watching them coming and going, and they're passing on the information about their uh, activities to the active service units uh, or to the local IRA branch. Uh, and then those plans can be made about ambushes. Um, some of them are setting what we're called honey traps, in that they are getting to know the black and tans and the auxiliaries, and they're getting information out of them. Uh, they're spies, basically. Um, and then they're doing what, what was usually written into the history books. They're you know, feeding and looking after and washing the clothes and making sure the men on the run have somewhere safe to sleep when they, when they come uh, to the safe houses. They're doing um, some quite traumatic stuff as well. Uh, if young IRA men were shot dead, it is the common among women who retrieve their bodies, clean them, get them ready for burial, and then make sure that they have a proper uh, both religious and republican burial. Um, oftentimes they're the ones who, who take the guns into the graveyards, so there's, there can be shots over the graveside. But you know, think about that, they are actually um, having to prepare for burial young men, usually 17, 18, 20-year-olds, that they knew themselves, so it's, it's quite traumatic. Um, and oftentimes they are roughly treated by the black and tans because you, about late 1920 into 21, the government realised how important the Kamin women were to a guerrilla war, that they were the eyes and ears of the active service units. So they are the, they, they're getting the worst of the reprisals, the attacks on their homes, they're being beaten up. There's, there was a woman in, in Longford, Ballin and Lee, she was beaten so badly one night that nine of her teeth were knocked out of her, of her head. And, and she said, well, you know, I just got them, went to the dentist and he fixed it up and I continued with my work for Ireland. They're very stoic. Uh, they see that as their sacrifice for, their co- for the cause of Ireland. I would argue that without the coming among women, the guerrilla war that the IRA took to the Crown forces could not have been as successful as it was, like they did fight them to a standstill Standstill, really, when the truce was called. Um, but without the women, they couldn't have done it.
1: Okay, before I move on to the next question, just to say, if anyone uh, in the audience wants to ask a question or make a contribution, even if you know, you're not the designated questioner, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll go to you, right? So this is it's open to everybody, just, just to make that clear. Um, Now, I want to move on to the next question. Uh, Josh McCabe uh, of Malahide Community College. Where's Josh?
3: The IRA flying columns relied heavily on the goodwill of people to hide them. How many of these people do you think genuinely supported the IRA, and how many felt intimidated or threatened into helping them?
1: That's a good question. So how many supported the IRA? How many were intimidated into supporting them? Liz?
5: Um, Well, at the start, with the solo headbag ambush uh, the, the IRA weren't supported um, by the people. But the response from the authorities uh, quickly rallies the people to support the IRA. Um, if you look at the newspaper reports that talk about the solo headbag ambush where the Turji Brigade shot the two policemen, um, you know, it's it's they're they're totally taking them apart. There is no support for this at all. But then you fast forward to the knock long. Rescue. Um, so the lads that had been involved in Headbeck, um Sean Hogan, he had been arrested. He's been transported uh, by train to Cork, and Dan Breen and Sean Tracy plan his escape. Um, there's a shootout. More policemen are killed, but the response from the military, or from the media, from the people, is completely different to what it was in January. So the support had begun to grow, thanks to the response from the authorities. Then you bring on the black and tans and the auxiliaries, and that just brings another level of support um, for the IRA because of the the way the black and tans and the auxiliaries acted here, and we're given a free reign to do it. Um, Depending on some localities as well, though, because in areas like Dundalk, um, you had a strong um, uh, British presence there, a lot of British um, soldiers, ex-British soldiers, uh, lived in the area, so they weren't very supportive of the IRA. Um, and as the war certainly goes on, there would be people that would be intimidated and um, to stay quiet because the IRA also wouldn't go to houses that you know weren't necessarily supportive of them because it's bringing more hassle on their doorstep. Um, definitely people would be intimidated to keep them out shut. If they see something, don't say anything. And then you pay the ultimate price if you do open your mouth. And that did happen with Mrs Lindsay down in Cork. Um, So in general, as the war goes on, you're getting more support from the people. Um, I don't have the exact numbers. But again, with the release of the pension files and so on, you are getting those stories now emerging (coughs) um, that people were supportive um, or else, if not just um, to, to, to keep their mouths shut, maybe not actively pursuing, um, you know, the, the, to sort of inform on the IRA. In some cases they did, but numbers are, are, you know, we don't actually have the exact numbers.
3: How do you measure something like that? I would say one way you could measure public support is in terms of, of the votes. And sometimes people try and diminish the 1918 election and say, oh, no one who voted in 1918 knew that they were voting for a war. But there was local elections in 1920, by which stage everyone in Ireland knew they were in a war and the support level for, for Sinn Féin actually rose and the, the percentage of votes that they took around the country went up. So I think if you look at the local elections, it's not just, there's a lot of emphasis on the general election, but just like today, you had local elections as well, and you see Sinn Féin support rising uh, throughout the war, and I think that's, that's reflective of how the public felt.
5: And Sorry, one more thing. Uh, Mary mentioned, uh, or one of you mentioned, the Republican courts. The people actually got behind oh, did, yeah. the, the Republican courts and totally undermined um, the, the judicial system here. So that would be another way to measure the support from the people. Didn't agree with some of the findings if you were the one that was being brought before the Republican courts because they did try to be fair, but that would be another way to gauge the the support. Yeah,
4: and and the IRA did also intimidate people to stay away from the British Army, to isolate them within communities. So they would intimidate businesses not to do uh, business with them, you know, supply them with foodstuffs and all that sort of thing. But also with women, for example, young girls who might be dating or uh, f- fancy some of the British soldiers or the RIC men were often attacked and had their hair shaved off to stop them company keeping. It was called. So that whole process of isolating um, the soldiers, who were living in communities, in garrisons, in communities, but isolating them uh, from those communities and and making you know creating that they're too. Uh, Armed, uh, two groups who are not to have any association with each other, either emotionally or, or uh, in, in terms of um, supplying them or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, the IRA does keep a bit of control over uh, what's going on throughout the country.
1: Okay, I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, Dario Reazi, from um, St. Vincent's High School, Sutton. Now, just if we get the mic over here, yeah, who's the closest one? passed
2: along there <coughs> Hi, so uh, my question was uh, what was the significance and contribution of the local people and the Catholic Church during the War of Independence
3: oh, yeah, Catholic Church. yeah so two, there's two kind of two questions In one there local people first of all and then the, and then the Catholic Church <laughs> any revolutionary movement has two dimensions to it I think it has the army in the field of war and also I suppose the backing of the people and you need both of those things you won't succeed Uh, without one or the other in a moment of of, of revolutionary turmoil ordinary people play a phenomenal role Uh, i don't like that term ordinary. everyday people play an important role in the irish revolutionary period there's uh, numerous examples of this one that i did a lot of work on gaelic sunday 1918 where the authorities make it impossible for the gaa to play matches unless they get a permit from their local ric station or dublin castle you think the gaa were going to do that they weren't and the response of the gaa was that they played more than a thousand games at once right across the island of ireland that's an incredible moment of mass civil disobedience that shows ordinary people are involved. The first general strike in, in Western Europe, the first successful general strike in Western Europe, happens in Ireland in 1918 again against conscription. The country just stops, you know, with the exception of Belfast, which works twice as hard that day. Nowhere else on the island of Ireland works. They just shut the country down. So, I mean, it's important that Sinn Fein, that the Republican movement more broadly, are able to point at the civilian masses and say, these people are with us, and as the war goes on, there's other examples of it. There's a munitions strike. If you've seen Ken Loach's movie *The Wind That Shakes the Barley*, uh, they capture that really well, where the train driver uh, Liam Cunningham plays a train driver. He refuses to let the British Army or British weapons onto the train. Like all of this, is everyday people who are not members of the IRA who are taking a very proactive role uh, in the struggle. As for the Catholic Church, I mean, people a century ago were very Catholic, and there's a danger in projecting us onto the past and wishing that they were like us. I mean, Jim Larkin in the middle of O'Connell Street. Larkin describes himself time and time again as a Catholic communist. Rosie Hackett is a daily mass communicant. These people are on the left of the Irish Revolution and they're still very Catholic in their views. Now, the Catholic Church was a cornerstone of the identity of these people. And in many places, the church plays a positive role in the Irish Revolutionary period. Like when it comes to the anti-conscription movement in mm-hmm. 1980 and when they're telling people, we're not going off to die in some trench in France or Belgium. The priests are centrally involved in that on the podiums up and down the island of ireland the bishops sign the anti-conscription <coughs> pledge and tell people not to go and fight in, in the war so being catholic was a cornerstone for a lot of these people of their identity that's not to say everyone in the irish revolution was catholic I mean, off the top of my head people like michael nowak uh, in dublin from the jewish community there's other examples of that whatever faith group you want to pick you'll find people from quakers to jews and everyone in between who played some role in the irish revolution but certainly, I think Catholic identity was important to a lot of that generation.
4: Mary, yeah, yeah. yeah, and there's also the kind of um, co-option of Catholic ceremony in in the, uh, in the revolution, in the uh, support of the revolution. So you get mass rosaries being said outside prisons. Mm. You get uh, um, you know marches to churches in support of, of prisoners or in support of local IRA men. You get the militancy of burials of of. Um, men who were killed in ambushes ira men who were killed in amb- ambushes so basically the local people the ordinary everyday people uh, militarize their faith practices in favor of the revolutionary movement during this period as well and it's very very effective because you for propaganda sake you know you can't have and you have to remember there were international journalists here during this whole period observing what was going on so a whole you know hundreds and hundreds of women on their knees outside of Mount Joy Jail you know, to rush them, to, to beat them up, to attack them, would have been terrible propaganda. Yet what they are doing is making a huge statement of support for the revolutionary movement. So it's interesting how the ordinary people use their religion in aid of the revolution.
1: Martin,
2: Martin, yeah. Yeah, the only thing I I would say is particularly at the beginning of the War of Independence, um, you wouldn't have found all Catholic priests in favor. I mean, for example, the Solahad Beg ambush was roundly condemned uh, from the pulpit. Now, the the priest in question, he'd be fairly Redmondite politics and had been involved in recruiting uh, and so on. So I think there's, 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 a, there's a bit of nuance there. The Catholic, but I think the Catholic Church was very important from uh, you know, the Bishop of Limerick a few weeks after the 1916 executions. But you'd, you'd be, be wrong to think that it was monolithic. I mean, when, as I say, the um, parish priest of Tipperary um, uh, quoted the famous saying, where Tipperary leads, Ireland follows, um, you know, he hoped this wasn't going to be the case, um, you know, after Sola
5: Can I just, sorry Liz, yeah. And just on that, as you say, there was was condemnation from um, some in the priesthood and the hierarchy, but you also do have a lot of priests themselves that are victimised. You have Father Griffin, who was actually murdered um, as the war goes on, Father Michael Flanagan. Um, his work isn't necessarily supported by the hierarchy they tried to get rid of him um, and then you have the Capuchin priests who had attended those uh, the leaders before they were executed in 1916 um, I think his father Dominic is arrested and imprisoned during the War of Independence so you did have some priests that were putting themselves um, in the front line as well and some of them like Father Griffin paid the ultimate price as well mm.
1: Can I just throw in my own little question here uh, is there a sense that this kind of Catholic religiosity that you talk about, Mary, has been used like as a stick in the present secular age to beat the Irish Revolution, you know? I mean, mm. is, is, there, is, is, there, is there a danger of, again, the glib assumption that if they're saying the rosary outside Mount Joy, they're not serious revolutionaries?
4: Well, I think what Donald said is we can't judge the past by our own attitudes to or towards religious uh, fervour and, and religious faith and idea, you know, I think it was, you have to look at it in the context of the time, everybody was, partic- most people practiced their faith daily and weekly. Uh, and it's not to say again that every revolutionary was, was Catholic either. You had women like Kathleen Lynn and Madeleine winsch and some of the leaders of Common Amman are Church of Ireland or Anglican or, or other non-Catholic religions. But they found comfort in their faith. They found comfort in the practice of the faith particularly as the violence escalated. Um, and I think at a local level, um, uh, the, the, the grassroots um, members of the Catholic Church and the priests were together, you know, as the violence escalated, they sought comfort from one another. The hierarchy had to play a political game, obviously. They had to kind of walk that line between condemning the violence and, and radical revolutionaries, but also recognising that something was changing and transforming here, and keeping an eye on where they would a, succe- where, where they'd position themselves to be in and, power. And it
2: was a very big change from, say, 60 years previously. Mm-hmm. The Fenians, the Fenians, and the Catholic Church were fairly much on all opposite sides. And um, you know, people like um, uh, Charles Kickham. Um, uh, the, the novelist, but also the um, president of the I.R.B. had difficulty getting a church funeral, and so on. But that had all softened greatly mm-hmm. uh, a generation or two or two later. Now, I mean, I think you will find that there are one or two people in the revolutionary movement. Um, uh, you know who aren't particularly uh, religious, but um, but undoubtedly it was it, it was mutually supported. And of course, you had people. You had a very savvy Archbishop of Dublin at the time, Archbishop Walsh William William Walsh, both from from the 1880s through. Uh, he died in 19 in, in 1921. And I think you see the church did not want to become isolated mm-hmm. from the people. I mean, originally it would have been sceptical about home rule, anti-land League, and land war and so on. and he and Croak and so on uh, tried to make sure that the church was in touch with the people and moved with the people, and he had become disillusioned with the, with the Home Rule party by sort of by, well by the middle of the first world war even.
1: Could it, could it just be a case of cynically back in the, what they considered to be the winner? I remember, no, I I, 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 think, I
2: I think that's unfair. I think William Walsh was um, you know a great uh, clerical a statesman, cro- I think uh, I think they were people of conviction. I don't think they were uh, just sort of cynical. Uh, cynic. I, I wouldn't describe either of them uh, as a as, as, as cynics, but I mean, they weren't totally unworldly either, you know, uh, but I mean, then uh, few Catholic clergymen are. <laughs> <you're really> <laughs> if,
4: if you look at some revolutionary families, you might have somebody. <laughs> you might have somebody. Look, if you look at the revolutionary families, like the Ryans, for example, of Tom Cool. Yeah. You'd have uh, the, some of the boys are in the IRA, some of the girls are in Cumann but you also have a nun and a uh, nun and a priest in the family. So the Catholic clergy are coming from the same families and the same communities and the yeah. same backgrounds just as f- the rebels and the revolutionaries. Just um, the so the Sorry. divisions are, are not so wide anymore. Yeah. yeah.
1: Just as a little diversion, Donald, on your website, uh, the, the, come here to me, which you all, you all should put as your favourites <laughs> on the top of your, your computer screens, you have an ongoing series on atheists in the 1911 yeah, uh, census. Yeah, yeah, it's is,
3: few of is, them, yeah, it's a few of them. Ha- many, how many of them is there? Well, there, I think there's a couple of dozen in Dublin. <laughs> but uh, what, Sean McDermott, one of the 1960s And their names and leaders. addresses, please. Sean McDermott <laughs> lists his religion in the 1911 census as Irish nationalists. <laughs> and in, in marital status, he wrote single, but not for long.
4: A few of the women wrote in suffragist yeah. as, re- as their religion in 1911. Now, I'm going to go on
1: to another question on, on, on women's history. Daniel Drummer, Scarry's Community School.
3: Where is he? Hi. Uh, my question is on whereabouts
4: in Ireland did women play the most active role, and did they play any sort of critical or leadership roles
1: do I, do, do I tell you, there's a, there's a little barb in that question. You're, you're, you're looking for evidence of leadership, Mary.
4: <laughs> let well, you interpret uh, then that. Then how do you define leadership? What do you mean by leadership? Yes. Um, well, it's, it's hard to say where they were most active during the War of Independence. It waxed and waned over the period where, where, where the war was, was uh, being fought and carried out. And of course, the executive is in Dublin, and is, or Dublin is where Cuminamon is founded in 1914, uh, the executive remains here, and it, the executive does govern the whole organization. Uh, but a lot of the branches are, are also quite independent and left very much to their own devices as the, as the war progresses. Um, so you could say women did play a re- leadership role. I mean, uh, in, in, certainly when it came, for example, to the treaty debates, Cuminamon are the first organization to hold a meeting to consider the treaty, and are anti-treaty. They decide not to support the treaty. Uh, the, the minority of Kominamon women who support the treaty leave Kominamon then and find a uh, found Kominasirsa, which is the pro-treaty organisation. Um, women like Countess Markovic, who is the president of Amon, is Minister for Labour in the Doyle in the, in the first Doyle, uh, and continues on um, uh, until... Uh, she, the, the treaty debates, of course, she's anti-treaty, so she withdraws from, uh, from the government and from the Dáil. Uh, most of the time, she's on the run. So a lot of the Cumin branches are pretty much left to their own devices, because the, 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 while there is communication from Dublin to the country, uh, really people are working at local area uh, on their own activities and their own uh, ambushes and whatever they're doing there. So for example, in Kerry, uh, which I'm studying. You would have uh, local district councils and then branches within that. And so wherever things are happening, you have coming among women uh, working with the IRA, with the local flying columns, with the active service units, um, and doing what they need to do to back up the guerrilla war. Um, I don't know, in terms of well, leaders, who would you say would um, the leaders well, be? other Markovich? Well, kind of Markovich yeah, for yeah, Labour.
5: yeah. But Well, in terms of the intelligence war, women are crucial who yes. intelligence for and you've got women in really really high up positions lily mernon is one example she's actually in dublin castle gathering the intelligence and the authorities became aware that there was a spy in the castle Hadn't a clue it was her. they get the wrong person and they promote her so she's even closer to the information and um, you've got josephine o'donoghue down in cork and her with Florio Donoghue, they're like the a tag team operating the intelligence in Cork City. Um, and you've got Linda Cairns Linda um, is, is crucial to, to this Sligo IRA right, because she had a car. Like, it's difficult that anyone had a car, but for a woman to have a car in 1920 was was unheard of. Um, and Vinnie Bourne, who was a member of the squad, when he was asked about what he could remember of Linda Cairns, it was the fact she had a car. That's all that stuck out in his head. But she was transporting three members of the IRA to an ambush and the, the British government had brought in the, the, the Special Powers Act or whatever that if you were caught with a gun, then you were liable for execution. And they run into a patrol of auxiliaries. So she took the blame. She said that the guns were hers. Now somehow the British believed her and um, they were all put on trial, but the men were not executed but she got a 10-year prison sentence. So she was crucial to actually ambushes taking place in, um, in Sligo. The Cuny sisters, um, the Inean and the um, branch of on in Dublin, their accounts are brilliant. Um, but when it came to Bloody Sunday, um, after a number of um, uh, the shootings at Mount Street, they were attending mass in University Church on Stevens Green, waiting for the lads who had taken part in the assassinations to then take their guns. The men would walk off, and the girls are behind them carrying the guns. So if they did get stopped by the police, the men would be searched, but nothing would be found on them. And so you do have all of those, uh, just some of those examples of what you were
2: Not just. Uh, There, I mean, there is one very fine memoir from a woman on the War of Independence, and this is, I think, I've got her name right, Kathleen Hayes McCoy. There is a Bridget Bandon. Oh, on the. Yeah. And I mean, Cork was one of the big centres of activity both in the War of Independence and the Civil War. And it gives it gives you a real understanding I mean she, she was the wife of the local commander, but uh, but they also ran a business and the business was being constantly raided by the by the British, but it gives a, a very, very vivid account. Um, I don't think it's in print, but no. it can be got in the library. One you know, of
4: the interesting things though about the women's participation is a lot of their participation was that uh, silence was very important to what they did. And in, indeed, some of them were asked to leave coming so that they wouldn't be suspect, suspected by the British, uh, the Crown forces um, in what they were doing. So we don't know a lot of what they did, because they, were, they had to keep very silent, and that culture of silence remained with them for the rest of their lives. Because of course, for intelligence work, you need to be able to say nothing about anyone to, any, uh, to anyone, uh, except the person you're delivering the message to. So a a lot of what the women did, Michael Collins worked very, very closely with a lot of women in getting intelligence uh, for all the assassinations and all the different uh, events and ambushes that he was part of planning. So again, I'd go back to the point I made, without the women, could the guerrilla war have been conducted in the way that it was? And I would say no, it couldn't.
1: Daniel, do you want to come back on any of that? Uh, You're happy enough with that answer, very good. Uh, Now, Next question, Luke Kavanagh, sixth year, Malahide Community School. Where's Luke?
0: Yeah. Uh, how's it going? I was just wondering
3: why there was a disagreement over who should represent Sinn Féin in the 1922 talks in
2: London.
1: Yeah, in other words, why, why did why did why did uh, Collins go and Dev didn't go? Oh, sorry, the, the October. The,
2: the, the October opposite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. why did? Well, I, I think you know at at that stage, and it isn't much talked about even in the history books, is you know there was be beginning to be, as you have, in a lot of independence movement beginning to be a bit of a a, a power struggle um, uh, uh, taking place now it was question is who should be kept in reserve now Deb's idea of negotiation and even people like Kissinger would approve of the principle of this is that you keep your principal person in reserve as somebody who can be if there's disagreement at the table somebody that can be referred back to so you don't have all your resources there having to make up make up their their their, their mind on the spot now I think it's quite possible that Collins uh, who wouldn't have been a very recognisable public figure um, up until the time he came to London. Um, I mean, the people had a great difficulty getting the police had a great difficulty getting hold of him uh, during the War of Independence. It is that uh, he felt perhaps he should be the person um, uh, held in reserve, and of course he he was the sort of shadow president of the IRB. There was a kind of shadow organisation, so. Uh, I think that would be part of it. There was also interestingly enough, um, at least according to an interview I owe 30, 40 years ago is <laughs> Dev claimed, uh, that he wanted Mary McSweeney to be part of the delegation mm-hmm. and claimed that Collins and Griffith took the view that this was quite unsuitable for women. Now I've often thought, that part of the problem when you ask yourself why did the the, the, so many of the women go not quite all of them but most of them go Republican over the treaty debate is well because they didn't participate in the process of negotiating if you are kept on the outside what can you fall back on except principle Mm -hmm. Um, if you are involved in the negotiation and you have to see what the difficulties are and the compromise you might have uh, a more nuanced uh, view of of what is going on so i think actually a price was paid for the uh, you know by say the pro the, the pro-treaty free states that uh, was by excluding women and of course the thing only got worse after worse after that the high watermark was the, the suffrage um, but interesting even the suffrage uh, the women um, lobbied griffith to have the vote for the 1922 election but was told no uh, They couldn't have it until the Free State Constitution came into force in December uh, 1922. There was a kind of deep, 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 deep distrust which went on for a long time and stayed in the political system. Hannah Skeffington, for example, um, uh, claimed that uh, Lamas in the 30s, now not the 60s, um, had more than once said that he would repeal the vote for women if he could and uh, (laughs) sure couldn't they rely enough on what their (coughs) male relatives would vote, you know? And I, I've never seen that denied, and it, I'm afraid from what I know of Lamas, I don't find it totally implausible.
4: No, he did bring in the Conditions of Employment Act that excluded women mm. from certain businesses in 1936. And of course, you know, not having the suffrage in 1922 for that treaty election um, meant that only women over the age of 30 voted. Mm. Um, and of course, most of the coming women were under the age of 30. So they didn't actually have a vote in that election. Uh, And that, again, excluded them, as you rightly said, from making proper decisions and and feeling marginalized.
3: Just on the point of the people that we sent to to London to debate with with the British, I mean, they were revolutionaries. Some of them were parliamentarians, they were elected MPs. But remember, the first all is a one-party parliament. (laughs) The Labour Party stepped aside, gave Sinn Féin a clear run at it. So these parliamentarians, these young men who go to London, They may be elected officials, but they've never debated another political party uh, in Parliament. And should the Labour Party have been in the first stall, maybe they should have. In the first election in the the Irish Free State, the Labour Party got 17 TDs elected. They ran 18 candidates, so nearly every one of them was elected. So there was a hunger for politics beyond just Sinn Féin in the Parliament. So you send these young men across the ocean who've been in a one-party Parliament to debate opposite people like Lloyd George, the Welsh wizard, Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. you know, Lord Birkenhead, these are the giants of political, uh, British political history, and they're debating these members of, of a one-party parliament. So I think the inexperience actually of, of, of Sinn Féin on a political level probably showed at that table in London.
4: Also shows how far British political uh, processes have fallen now when you see who's uh, basic. Brexit.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> could, could I just add, add something here? it is, is <laughs> just in terms of the splits that became apparent, because we're going to move on to this area now. Is there a sense that the the, the ambiguity which favoured the revolutionary movement while the struggle was ongoing, you know, against the British, mm. became fatal then when it came to, to actually make the peace? In other words, the ambiguity over who was in charge, the pro- the who was in charge of the IRA and so on and so forth, that would, that would have aided the, the, the revolutionary movement because the British
2: didn't know, you know, who they were dealing with to some extent. Mm but the tr- trouble is about all revolutions is you know some of the aims are sort of semi utopian you can see this with brexit which isn't actually a revolution as, uh, as such but at a certain point, if you're going to come to a deal, you have to narrow down the possibilities. You have to make compromises. You have to make choices, and choices uh, that have cost, and that's going to lead to division. Now, uh, Lee Kuan Yew, who was Prime Minister, founder of Singapore in the 1960s, made it, he asked why were there so often splits and civil wars following a successful war of independence? And the reason, uh, he, he said, is because none of the different factions none of them had you know the authority of tradition usage and so on they were all new they didn't have a long established legitimacy and so on and so therefore inevitably um, people would split over their aims and unfortunately it came from, of course the third uh, the third party to the Civil War was the British because the two sides of the Civil War did try and seek compromise especially through uh, the draft constitution but it wasn't sufficiently consistent with the treaty and Churchill and his right-hand man who was an ideologue, Lionel Curtis, uh, um, vetoed it and made sure that the crown was in the constitution with knobs on and they were absolutely determined that de Valera and Collins weren't together. The reason Lloyd George was considered a genius by uh, the British press and public opinion at least for a short period was uh, that he had got the Irish to fight among themselves
1: Okay, uh, sorry, is Luke uh, happy enough with those answers?
2: Yeah. Okay,
1: I'm gonna, I want to I want to move on to the next question. Uh, this is uh, Daniel Fitzgerald, uh, uh, sixth year Malahide Community School. Daniel, yeah, did you just get the mic there?
4: Uh, how did the disagreement over the treaty lead to the outbreak of the civil war in 1922? Yeah.
1: Is. Why did um, the Civil War break out? Give me two minutes.
5: <laughs> okay, <laughs> nice. Um, well, basically, um, it's not partition. Um, because the country had been partitioned with the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, so that was set in stone. Um, The pro-treaty side or the the Irish delegates uh, recognising that it does copper fasten, but Ireland was going to be split in two. And if you look at the treaty debates, the only people that talk about the north of Ireland are the people who have a connection with the north of Ireland. Um, It doesn't figure in the treaty debates, it's the Oath of Allegiance. That is the, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back. That is what everyone is talking about this oath of allegiance that has to be taken by Irish politicians to the, the, the British King. And people didn't fight for that oath. They had taken the oath to the Republic in 1919. That was the only oath they were going to take. But you do see it. it Uh, from from my research um, I've seen a different approach between the military and the politicians they are two completely different animals and the politicians on both sides Arthur Griffith in March 1922 is saying if we're gonna have a civil war get it over and done with and there was tension brewing in Limerick and De Valera is making speeches left right and center you know insightful speeches encouraging people to wage through Irish blood he is saying this to people to men who have killed for the Republic before will kill again for the Republic. The military were trying to stop it. The military are having these meetings and trying to broker uh, peace, to avert conflict because they know what it is to cross that line and when you cross that line there is no going back Um, you have this sort of, it doesn't help that you have the assassination of Henry Wilson by the IRA in London and that puts pressure um, on the Irish government to act against the crowd, the anti-treaty IRA that are set up their headquarters in the forecourts McGreedy, who's the commander-in-chief, um, the British commander, he's telling Churchill to back off, don't play into the hands, if you attack the IRA that are in the four courts, it's going to reunite the, the pro and anti-treaty IRA. Um, there's the Collins-Devillair pact, which I, if anyone can understand that, I don't know, it's, it's just so confusing but right up until the the 28th of June, there are attempts by the military to to stop that conflict, but you have the kidnap of uh, Ginger O'Connell, who was pro-treaty by members of the anti-treaty IRA, Um, and that really puts it up to Collins that you can't have a a pro-treaty army general being kidnapped and just allow it to happen and then they, they finally bombard the Four Courts, but they had more tried more to reverse civil war. Yeah. Um, and then when, they, when the, it happens, you have Devil Valera trying to regain control. He has lost that control of the IRA, the anti-treaty side, and then Griffith, of course, um, he dies very soon after the civil war breaks out.
1: Tell you, a, 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 this is, a, a, this is a kind of an off-piste question, not my list. Uh, get in there quick.
3: <laughs> uh, I just had a question uh, to jump on the back of the conversation about the treaty negotiations earlier. Uh, Do you think it's a possibility that de Valera chose not to lead the treaty negotiations because he didn't want to be credited with a negotiation that he knew they were going to lose and didn't want to be credited with a partition treaty that he felt may have been inevitable?
2: Martin. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's the charge that is made against him. I think that he thought he had a compromise which we called external association, which was that, um, 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 Ireland would become or stay a member of the British Commonwealth and accept the King as head of that association, but not as King of Ireland. And I think he felt uh, that it could that this could just be uh, pushed pushed over the line. And I I, I I I believe he 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 thought that he thought that uh, uh, genuinely. Now. Everybody, when they're acting politically, let's be realistic about it. Has mixed motives. They may think one thing at one particular time and think another. The thing is, if I'm not totally excluding your interpretation. I'm just saying it's not the only interpretation.
1: And of course, that's like precisely what India got mm-hmm. after yeah. the Second World War. Yeah, yeah you know, it, 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 if, if
2: the British had been a bit more supportive. Yeah, but but you see, the thing the thing about that is, and I have I, I I've, I've written about this. Um, is the British so were much more prepared to make allowances for the Indians because the Indians were big and important and all and the rest been prestigious <laughs> than they were for Ireland, Ireland uh, being close by. And you see, if you actually look at the detail of it in, in 1948, 1949, Ireland was invited to go to the Commonwealth Conference. At first it refused then it accepted but said we will go not as a member but as associates, you know, according to the de Valera doctrine and we will raise the question of um, a partition and the result is they didn't get an invitation. But, of course, if they had been India, they probably would. <laughs> now, another question over here. Another unscripted
1: question. Uh, I was wondering. You mentioned international press covering the War of Independence earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any mention or record of foreign military advisors or observers or observers with the IRA
0: during the war?
5: Yeah, you have the American mm-hmm. Commission. Yeah. And um, the American Commission and the Labour Commission. Yeah. Um, and the American mission is huge. There's a whole report mm-hmm. there on it. And um, there was a big tribunal over in America. Mary McSweeney, Terence McSweeney's wife, she, uh, Muriel McSweeney, sorry. She spoke um, at this, and it was a huge report. Charlotte Despard, who was the Lord Lieutenant's sister, um, so he's fighting the IRA, and she's supporting the IRA. Um, She's an amazing uh, character. But she's bringing them all around Balbriggan, after the sack of Balbriggan and so on, showing the destruction of what actually was going on um, in Ireland. And then the Labour Commission in England, they set up, their own independent investigation as to what was going on. So not necessarily maybe military um, people, but certainly politicians or people that want to have connections to uh politicians in america that could help
2: sorry there's help an amusing anything. story is there was an assassination attempt on lord french by mm. in fact the tipperary folks mm, uh, mm. tracy and breen and mm-hmm. so on and charlotte despard who was this republican sister of the lord lieutenant she reproached dan breen uh with taking a shot at poor john he was uh, you know, John French, right, and uh, Breen replied briskly to her, well, his only regret was that they didn't get him.
1: <laughs> now, I'll tell you, guys, I'm just looking at the time here, so if anyone at all on the floor has any questions, just uh, if you just gather your thoughts there. Uh, but I, I have two more questions I want to go to here. Uh, Pauly Burke, Fifth Year Malahide Community School. Where are you, Porik?
2: That's, that's an interesting question. I was,
5: uh,
3: just my question is uh, how is the war of independence overshadowed by the Treaty and the Civil War?
1: If I, that is an excellent question, yeah. because this again, one of these issues that comes up studying history, is looking at things retrospectively. Yeah. So Donald.
3: The danger of kind of reading history backwards. We're always conscious of. Yeah, but we all
1: know what happens next, do you see. Yeah, yeah,
3: we know how it ends, that's the problem. <laughs> We're kind of back to where we began. So the first question I took was kind of about, about memory and sources, and this brings us brings us back to that. I mentioned the Bureau of Military History and the first answer I gave is something you should go and have a look look at online. The Bureau of Military History lists its objective as being to tell the story of Ireland between 1913, the formation of the Volunteers, and 1921, the truce. They did not want to talk to people about the Civil War. Now, some people went in, sat down, and spoke about the Civil War, and they continued to record what was said. But specifically, when they took those statements in the 40s, they tried to keep the Civil War outside their brief of what they talked about. The Civil War, more people lose their lives in the Civil War than lose their lives in the Rising and the War of Independence combined. And the incredible bitterness of it is so deep. I mean, one anecdote that captures the horror of the Civil War perfectly, Kevin O'Higgins, who's a government minister, signs the execution papers for a man named Rory O'Connor, who had been best man at his own wedding. I mean, if that doesn't embody the bitterness of that conflict, I don't think any, any, anything does. But I don't think that it's that the, the Civil War has overshadowed the War of Independence. I think for a long, long time, very little was written that's right. on the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. in recent times, that's changing. Uh, a historian called John Dorney wrote a book recently on the Civil War in Dublin. It's already, I think, it's, it's been reprinted already. So that says something about the level of interest in that conflict now. But that centenary is interesting because the 50th anniversary of the Rising, in 1966 was a big deal you know for the irish state it was massive the troops went down o'connell street people were there in their hundreds of thousands that was very important the 50th anniversary of the war of independence was very important monuments went up all over the country the 50th anniversary of the civil war was a very quiet event you know it was largely uncommemorated by comparison so i think now the civil war is more and more coming into into our lives definitely more than it did when it was alive
2: a living thing. And that is because it hasn't been written about Mm. and researched or studied until the relatively recent past. It was taboo for a long period.
1: (laughs) Can I I just maybe do do something here just in a a different way, though? Isn't there an assumption because of the Civil War and because of the partition and because you had an almost homogeneity Catholic, conservative, kind of rather inward-looking society was established, there was an assumption that this represented a betrayal of the revolution, right? Whereas, I, I mean, I've heard Brian Hanley make this point several times that, you know, is that really true? In other words, was the type of conservative society yeah. established after the independence? W- was that so far removed from what these people actually stood for? Well, Kevin, their, Kevin like, O'Higgins, O'Higgins, and so on.
3: the prior I mentioned, Kevin O'Higgins said, we're the most conservative people who ever had a successful revolution. Then you take someone like Helena Maloney, who was a member of the Irish Citizen Army. She had this great line years later, we saw a vision of Ireland pure, happy and free. We didn't realise it, but we saw it. Mm. So those two people who go on to lead interesting lives in post-independence <laughs> Ireland, one of them thinks he got what he was fighting for, and the other one feels that the republic was never achieved.
1: Maybe. Yeah, so I think you, ha- you, I you have to look
4: at it from um, different perspectives. Yes, the, the the middle class bourgeois did get what they were fighting for. Basically, they got the replacement, uh, the power replacement, a power shift from British authorities uh, to the Catholic bourgeois who become the power. Mongers in the state, but for women, it, it didn't deliver anything. Uh, in fact, it, it took things backwards. Uh, in, uh, and Helena Maloney was perfectly right, and she makes me- several of those statements over the years. And that, you know, she was being asked when uh, she gets disgusted when people ask her why women fought in the War of Independence. You know, would they ask a black haired man why he fought, or a blonde haired man why he fought? Women could have an ideology to which they were committed. Mm. Um, but, of course, the women then do get demonized because of the overwhelming support in Komenemann, not all, but mo- the majority of them, for the Civil War. So they become these unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries, these furies. Um, they're, they're, these Amazonian women who had been blooded by this uh, you know, unnatural performance of Com- of combat becoming combatants and being blooded in this in the war of independence. so now women need to go back into the domestic and become respectable Irish women, which the Irish free state sees is necessary for its own uh, identity creation. So for women, the free state delivered nothing of the promise of 1916. Uh, well, uh, th- th-
2: this is for, 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 for of course, uh, the radical women. But let's not kid ourselves. A Home Rule Ireland. I mean, the Irish Parliamentary Party was socially conservative. For example, they opposed, um, uh, I, 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 no, the, the, apart from the suffrage, they opposed, they opposed a, an amendment to the Industrial Act, which would have required. Uh, the Magdalene uh, laundries to be inspected and mm-hmm. they said, uh, no, uh, uh, the, 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 there's no scandal there, there couldn't possibly be any scandal, and in any case the managers tell us that they, uh, they couldn't really run these institutions if they were subject to ordinary, it, well indeed, but I mean there is a, conti- there is a, co- there's a, there's a pre-revolutionary and a post-revolutionary continuity which we, we, which we okay. We we shouldn't dismiss. And de Tocqueville said the same thing about the French Revolution, you know, when when all the turmoil and tumult was over, uh, you know, uh, there was still a lot of underlying continuity, not just change.
1: Okay. I'm going to go go for our final question. Um, This is to Jessica Conway, and by the way, this gets the prize for the best question on the list. (laughs) Uh, If (laughs) there is a prize, Jessica, where are you? Yeah.
2: 100 years on, how is the war of independence still affecting life in Ireland today?
1: Liz, do you want to take, I'm gonna throw this into all the panel here to finish up.
5: Um, how it's affecting, well, it's affecting um, hugely um, the partitioned. The islands are still partitioned. Um, Brexit is a huge thing, you know, it still goes back to revolution. Um, in terms of what I think is really uh, beneficial uh, sort of uh, impact is that we as a country are starting to understand how our country came into existence because of this um it is i feel that we we have the country today because of that conflict and um, i don't actually think we could have had an independent state without that conflict um because unfortunately the british government as they have done throughout history promised one thing but deliver something completely different um and I'm just very very thankful that I'm able to talk about these events and, and remember this thing because it is how our state came into being mm-hmm. don't
3: know. what are we now we're six years into uh, the decade of centenaries and if we've learned anything so far I think we've learned that commemoration is not really about the past it's about mm-hmm. the present you know and history is very important in terms of identity how we see ourselves often you know we we follow the same football teams our parents followed. We, got, we joined the same clubs. We're always shaped by the past in terms of how we, how we see ourselves. And I think this decade of centenaries, the war of independence and the events around it, has been very important in shaping us. I think there's been a lot of real engagement of civic pride in the decade of centenaries, which is fantastic. More people took part in Gaelic Sunday 2018 than took part in Gaelic Sunday 1918. You know, so there's been, a, there's been a real community engagement in, in this in recent years that I think is fantastic. I think in terms of how, how we see ourselves I think this is a very, very important thing this time. I've got a
1: Mary accent. So I'll leave it you last word, Martin. Mary, yeah.
4: I think it's been it's been a marvellous revisiting of um, for everybody, not just historians, uh, of of a hundred years ago and again the formation of of the state and and how our state came into being and how different groups were part of that, like uh, the working class, like women, um, uh, various other you know local communities, what they were, what was happening then, and and for Irish people, and I think in this very modern world where history is almost couched in terms of fake news uh, and not understanding our history can lead us down blind alleyways, as we can see in in Brexit, which I think is just a post-imperial nervous breakdown in many ways, (laughs) Um, like the the British don't understand how imperial history is not brilliant and fantastic and amazing and something that they (laughs) would want back. Uh, We have a more intimate understanding of our history That isn't to say uh, everybody does, but I think we as a nation are engaging with our history in a way that helps us understand ourselves today, how we came into being, how our our society has developed, um, the reasons why we've had to have things, uh, you know, uh, like say a second wave feminist movement because the first wave didn't work and we had to go at it again, why certain groups in, uh, in society are still marginalized. Uh, because a hundred years later we haven't still dealt with uh, you know uh, say the traveling community. They were never part of that revolution in, in many ways or you know the women who were in the Magdalen laundries were not the women they were trying to free a hundred years ago. not even the suffrage women talked about those women. so there were all there, there were marginalized communities then and there still are today and so we can learn lessons of from studying history of how we not make the same mistakes again or not do that again or correct those actions and i think it's just an amazing decade that we've had we have this opportunity to look back and to reevaluate okay. and rethink our histories
1: i yes, actually could I back, could i go back to jessica there where, where is she do you want to do you want to add anything else in here before i go to martin to wrap up um, has your question been answered or have you a view on this yourself
2: Um, I look at the sort of the war of independence as quite uh, like a huge part of our identity and um, personally I think it's it's had quite a um, big sort of social impact on us today is like a lot of people in Ireland have an immense amount of pride in their country and I think it stems from that spirit of like revolution that comes from with the war of independence and that we as a nation have managed through guerrilla warfare to overthrow such a massive imperial power and I mean that's my personal opinion and I like i found your answer also quite insightful so yeah <laughs> martin do you want to finish up for us yeah um i mean without being any way and i don't think we are being any way uncritical of the way things are today nor are our historians totally uncritical far from it of things that happened then i think nonetheless uh there is a lot of pride uh in the fact that we managed to achieve independence against the odds 100 years ago and sustain it through many different challenges since I once said on the platform is um, in this country every generation is going to have to fight for independence, though it will be done in a different way from uh, what, the way it had to be done um, 100 years ago. Um, if I've sort of one uh, caveat it is that uh, the militaristic uh, tradition and in 1922 on both sides uh, the treaty uh, divide yeah. the military took over for a while from the politicians um, you know that hasn't that hasn't unfortunately as we saw in the last 24 hours um, on the border hasn't, hasn't died out completely and of course Brexit I think has reinforced um, the fact that however and whatever problems it causes that we're, that we're glad that we are not part of the United Kingdom that is in the process of Brexit <laughs> mm. and it has also highlighted the huge difficulties abstracting altogether from security issues. It is uh, the the, uh, the difficulties of the border. I mean, all our European partners understand. Many of them have visited, unlike British politicians, have visited the, visited uh, the border. I mean, it runs through communities, dioceses. It's a totally different order of border from, say, the one in Cyprus, which has the Turkish community on one side, the Greek community on the other side. Uh, uh, the, the populations are are intermingled and it is nearly impossible uh, to police, which is the reason which is the reason why we are clinging on so hard to the backstop and it's why we're getting so much support from our European partners uh, for doing so. But that is actually something that has sort of, the ball bore, the bore in a way has come home to roost.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> okay, we're gonna have to wrap either. up there because I can see a double maths class uh, hoving into view here for some of you. Um, <laughs> Uh, it just falls to me to uh, thank everybody first of all thank uh, kevin manning uh, kevin you should definitely be a promoter right, to get a <laughs> like this and i'd like to thank our our panel uh, mary McAuliffe, uh, martin manzer um, uh, Donald Fallon and Liz Gillis, and I'd also like to thank you all uh, you people for in the audience, especially those people who uh, ask questions uh, scripted and unscripted, and we certainly will be repeating this exercise again. And uh, any, any of your friends who missed it, you can tell them that this will be uh, on our website shortly as a podcast. So, listen, thanks very much, guys, and I hope to see you soon. <laughs> very, very good. Excellent. you
0: really enjoyed that. really enjoyed that.